So good evening, Ron. Hello. Uh, you've uh, all got an advantage over me in the sense that you can see the people that are going to come in during my introduction before I can. So uh, I forgive you in advance for your distraction as the latecomers drift in behind me. Uh, welcome to the event. My name is Daniel Glazer, and I am director of a new thing called Science Gallery London, uh, which is part <coughs> of King's College, which is another... London institution, but some of which is across the road from here. Some of you may know it, um, uh, but we're on the Guy's campus in London Bridge. Uh, we're building a new space where art and science collide, which may be partly appropriate for this evening. Uh, you're all very welcome. Uh, we, we are in each other's company pretty much until eight, about an hour and a half. Um, and uh, we should say off the top that this is uh, co-hosted by Imperial College, so uh, those of you who represent or are part of that august institution are very welcome. And it's part of the LSE's sixth Space for Thought Literary Festival, which is from the 24th to the 1st of March, so quite close to the beginning of it. Um, and the theme this year, in case you didn't know, anyone know what the theme is this year without looking at your notes? Reflections is the correct answer. Well done, sir. Um, it is the, the theme is reflections. Uh, we're going. We have three speakers, uh, and they're each going to speak uh, in order, and I'll introduce them in a moment. Uh, we'll have a little discussion then amongst ourselves, uh, and then we'll have a discussion uh, involving you two. Uh, this event is going to be recorded. I think only in audio terms, so don't worry about your hair. But um, uh, it will be available uh, 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 for a podcast afterwards. Um, all technical issues being uh, well. Please, therefore, if for no other reason, put your mobiles on silent. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you're going to tweet, that's great, but do it silently. Uh, we encourage that, and if you're going to do it, then the hashtag for this and the rest of the events is uh, LSE LitFest. So please do uh, do that. I might, I may be moved to... Um, ah, that's fooled me. So they're all coming in from that side now. Um uh, I may be moved to check Twitter at a certain point uh, in the discussion bit, so if you feel like saying something on Twitter that you don't want to say out loud, uh, it may well get fed into the proceedings as we go along. Um, so that's the programme. Uh, I'm going to introduce our speakers in reverse order um, of their speaking. Uh, furthest from me is, is Roger Kneebone. Um, some of you may know that I used to work at Wellcome Trust, and there was a period of about two years where it was the exception uh, for there to be a, an application to Wellcome Trust that didn't include Roger in it. Uh, he is one of the most um, uh, prolific collaborators uh, uh, I've ever encountered. Um, and, and sort of the centre, the core of what he does is that he's a professor in the Department of Surgery and Medicine at Imperial, um, and, but he's also an engagement fellow at Wellcome Trust, um, and he's going to tell us about his stuff. Um, uh, we'll hear in the middle from Felicity Mellor, who did a PhD in theoretical physics and has experience lecturing in astronomy. Uh, and I think it's fair to say is that your day job is as a senior lecturer at the Science Communication Unit at Imperial College. And again, from somebody who's uh, done a lot in engagement in this country over the years, uh, many of the best people in that field have come through your bit of Imperial, so it's, it's kind of at the centre of a lot of what makes Britain great in terms of public engagement. And we'll hear first from Richard Bronk, who is a visiting fellow at the European Institute LSE. His degree is in classics and philosophy, um, and he has seven years, 17 years of experience in financial markets. I mean, I didn't have experience in financial markets until about four years ago, where I think we've all started to have experience in the financial <laughs> markets. Um, but he's been doing that uh, from before uh, we all got excited about it. Um, and he's been at LSE since 2000, so therefore quite a long visit. Um, uh, he's written a book, uh, well, several, I'm sure, but uh, The Romantic Economist, uh, Imagination, 
in economics. Is that the one you're going to sign after, or is there a different one? If anyone wants it. There's, there are copies outside, folks, and Richard assures me that he doesn't mind whether he signs it or not as long as you buy it. So um, <laughs> it's out there and he will be afterwards. So um, please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Richard Brock. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's very, very nice to be here. Now, metaphors have been with us a very long time. They fascinated the ancient Greeks. Indeed, the English word comes from the Greek metaphora, meaning the transfer of a word to a new sense. Much more recently, I.A. Richards called a metaphor a transaction between contexts. In other words, when you use a metaphor, you are replacing the standard conceptual grid that you use to make sense of a particular aspect of reality with elements from another conceptual grid normally used in a different context. You are, if you like, changing the lens or the filter you use to observe, analyse and talk about the world. Now, you might think that such a rhetorical trick has no place in sound science. Surely the point of science is to look objectively at the facts, to test hypotheses for success in making sense of those facts, and then to present the findings of research with as little rhetoric as possible. And doesn't the use of metaphors imply willfully distorting our vision, colouring our assessment of evidence, and using conceptually inappropriate language to present our findings? Well, in my short remarks today, I want to do two things. First of all, I'll invite you to consider the extraordinary challenges that scientists like the rest of us face in making sense of the world. Challenges that make the naive empiricist hope of starting from objective facts totally misguided. And since this is a literary festival, I'll draw on poets to help make my point. And I'll argue that the use of metaphors is a powerful, indeed necessary tool, if we're to make new sense of the world around us. But I'll also show how these same metaphors can lead to hidden bias in your analysis if you come to use them unconsciously. And secondly, I'll illustrate my general point in relation to economics, which, when you start to think about it, is chock full of metaphors mostly borrowed from physics, equilibrium, the elasticity and velocity of money, and so on. Now, following the tradition of post-Kantian romantic philosophy, I want to argue that you never have some unmediated access to the world as it really is. Rather, in both science and in everyday life, the world as it appears to you is a co-creation of your mind and the brute reality that you interact with. To use Wordsworth's phrase, you half-create the world of eye and ear. You are a creator and a receiver both. On this view, as M.H. Abrams famously put it, facts are, to use the Latin word factor, things made as much as found. Made by the conceptual structures, including metaphors, that you employ. Now, this is not to cast doubt on the existence of a real world outside your own heads. Rather, it is to point out that brute reality is something you cannot make sense of without the help of language, metaphors, or other conceptual and modelling frameworks that you supply. Reality is so multifaceted, multi-layered and amorphous as to be completely indigestible without the focus provided by language, models and metaphors. As Coleridge said when arguing with a young scientist who thought that he could analyse facts without first having a theory, you must have a lantern in your hand to give light, otherwise all the materials in the world are useless, for you cannot find them, and if you could, you could not arrange them. 
The point is you cannot do without metaphors, models and theories to help you understand the world any more than you can do without a lamp to see in the dark. But this does lead to a problem. For however useful you find a particular lamp or a particular metaphor and theoretical conceptual framework, it's always the case that the light it casts, the focus it brings, is limited and partial. And this means that if you only use one light, one metaphorical framework, you'll keep stumbling on aspects of reality outside the area illuminated by your metaphor or theory. Or to switch metaphors myself for a moment, the lens provided by any particular metaphor or model can bias and distort your vision as well as focus it. Now economics is a prime example of this. For too long it has been structured by one set of metaphors, derived, as George Shackle pointed out, from a quite different context, namely celestial mechanics, with its constitutive metaphor of equilibrium and its expectation of a predictable and rational order. This metaphorical structuring has been extraordinarily fruitful in helping disclose such intelligible and predictable order as often does exist in the apparent chaos of markets. But I would argue it has done so at the cost of leaving economists and those who use their models down there in the city blind to the central influence in economics of uncertainty, imagination and emotion. More on this in a moment, but first I want to draw out two general points that I believe we should think about, about how we use metaphors in science. First, changing the metaphors we use is a very effective tool in helping reveal aspects of reality that have up to now escaped us. As scientists, we should always be willing to experiment with new metaphors and new models with new diagnostic tools, if you like. Many of the great discoveries of science come from playing with new metaphors. But secondly, even as rational scientists, we must be willing to engage in a bit of postmodern deconstruction. Deconstruction of the hidden metaphors that structure our analysis and bias our evidence. You see, when you first use a metaphor, it's surprising, and it jolts you into a new way of thinking about something familiar. It helps you make a new discovery. But all too often, these same metaphors come over time to lurk hidden in our thoughts, to become so much part of our everyday language and mental landscape that we no longer notice the way that they are colouring and limiting as well as focusing our vision and analysis. When we are unaware of the hidden metaphors that structure our analysis and the data we use, we are liable to become partially sighted, to construct the data we use in a biased way, in short, to become bad scientists. Now let me turn to just a couple of examples. Nobel Prize winner Gary Becker has famously taken models of rational calculation and utility maximisation normally used to model economic choice, and applied them to the quite different domain of marriage and the upbringing of children. Children then become durable goods, and parents calculate likely returns on their investment. My son over there. Now, how much you balk at this as a total description, however much you balk at this as a total description of how we do or should think about our children... There is little doubt that experimenting with this metaphorical extension of standard economic models to the analysis of family life does reveal and highlight certain aspects of our interaction with partners and children that are ignored in traditional analysis. Similarly, in public choice theory, the transfer of the same modelling assumptions, self-interested utility maximisation, 
to the analysis of the behaviour of politicians and government employees has been very fruitful in revealing and explaining unsavoury, rent-seeking and self-interested behaviour by politicians and civil servants. In this way, new metaphors or new uses of standard modelling assumptions from one domain in another are often analytically productive. But notice that if all analysis and expectations of government behaviour become structured in this way, that is, if the metaphorical extension of economic assumptions to the study of politics becomes the new standard, and we are come to assume that politicians are never motivated by ideology or the public interest, but are always merely self-interested maximisers of their own utility, then two very pernicious effects are possible. First, we may come to discount apparent contradictory evidence, or rather reinterpret it in line with our dominant metaphor. And secondly, the dominant assumptions may start to inform the behaviour of civil civil servants and public servants themselves, so that the metaphorical extension of the economic motivational assumptions becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So this then is why it's so important that we deconstruct the metaphors and models we've internalised, that we remain conscious of their distortionary as well as their insight-giving properties, and why it's so important that we continue to experiment with different metaphors, different models. To rely on one metaphor is to see and act in a blinkered way. So now to finish, just let me give you one other example. Prior to the recent financial crisis, most central bankers, treasury officials, financiers and so on were convinced that the efficient markets hypothesis and neoclassical economic models, which were based on the metaphors of equilibrium and rational choice, that these were sufficient for a good understanding of markets. What is more, most of them had internalised this one perspective so well that they were simply not predisposed to see problems that were emerging because their theoretical and conceptual framework had no place for them. Bubbles and emotional spasms of euphoria and despair just didn't exist in this brave analytical world of celestial mechanics and rational expectations. As a result, those living in this metaphorical and modelling monoculture simply interpreted away evidence that in retrospect clearly pointed to bubbles emerging. Key players were in a metaphorical lock-in. Data was interpreted in line with the dominant metaphor and everyone acted accordingly. Now, since the crisis, central bankers and other economists have started experimenting with different models, borrowed this time from biology. Metaphors that focus on the importance of increasing returns, tipping points, mass extinction events, and so on. For example, the Bank of England has expressed interest in modelling the dynamics of credit default by analogy with epidemiology, by borrowing formulae used to model the spread of epidemics and using them to model financial contagion. A Coleridge two centuries ago wrote, bankruptcy spreads like a fever at once contagious and epidemic. So he was ahead of the Bank of England there. <laughs> now the point is not that these new organic metaphors and models will be always suitable for modelling markets, but just that experimenting with quite different models and metaphors can illuminate dynamics that up to now we've ignored. No metaphor gives us perfect vision. As Coleridge again said, no simile runs on all four legs. But the same metaphor makes, makes more sense of a particular problem than others. And in each case, I think we should be willing to experiment until we find the conceptual grid that illuminates our immediate predicament better than others. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Richard. I think we all kind of would vote for um, Samuel Coleridge uh, as the uh, next governor of the Bank of England on the strength of that uh, analogy. Um, Brilliant. So uh, we've got metaphors within economics, uh, and we've got a celestial dimension to those. I think we'll have to come in discussion to the question of what uh, is being metaphored like. You know, what is the central thing in, in economics that, it's, that is like other things? Because I'm not sure what I know what the centre of economics actually is, as opposed to the things it's like. But we'll come back to that. Uh, but Felicity, I mean, at least you began with a thing which does have, uh, you know, reality in some sense, celestial bodies and physics. <laughs> we hope. That's precisely what uh, I want to talk about. Really. Very good. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'm going to extend um, some of the points Richard's made into the, the case of physics. I, I should say my physics career was fleeting and now a very long time ago, and um, I now study how the media covers um, physics, and it's really that that I want to begin with. So I want to take as an example the the media frenzy that accompanied the discovery of the Higgs boson at CERN two years ago. And as many of you probably gathered from that media coverage, the Higgs boson is a fundamental subatomic particle um, that explains how matter came to have mass. And in July 2012, a team of scientists at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN announced that they had observed a signal that was consistent with that particle. And it was not hard to spot the metaphors in the subsequent news reports. But most obviously, the announcement was hailed as the long-awaited discovery of the God particle, repeating a metaphor that had first been coined many years earlier um, in the title of a book by particle physicist Leon Liedemann. Now, of course, neither physicists nor journalists really believe the Higgs is a tiny gobbit of God whizzing around the tunnels of the Large Hadron Collider. And indeed, physicists hate um, that term, the God particle. And their disquiet over the term, I think, belies a particular view of how language works, based on the assumption that ordinary people, um, people who read newspapers and, and these popular books, interpret language literally. Because the the God particle, um, that name can only be a problem if it's taken to imply that physicists really think God is in there, uh, or that particle physics can replace religious faith. But as a metaphor, by contrast, the phrase serves physicists' purposes, as it does that of journalists and book publishers. It signals the fundamental and universal role of the Higgs boson and declaims the magnitude of the discovery. So that religious metaphor simultaneously endows both the boson and the science, and perhaps the scientists, with unimpeachable significance. Now, more down-to-earth metaphors also abounded in the news coverage of the Higgs boson. So the particle uh, was often referred to as elusive, uh, but the scientists had successfully hunted it down, and now they were closing in on it. The more cautious news reports noted that the scientists were tentative in their claims, um, but these reports also noted that they had glimpsed the footprint of the Higgs. And now the scientists' journey had come to an end, and as the Times newspaper put it, with a metaphor that doubled as a pun, this was smashing news. Now, these more mundane metaphors of a hunt for an elusive particle not only construe the Higgs as an active agent, like a a wild animal, say, or or even a human criminal or a runaway, but they also configure the process of doing science as a particular sort of endeavour. Science becomes exciting, thrilling, dramatic, in a way that is hard to square with the endless hours spent over many years building apparatus, fixing problems and grinding data. 
Similarly, the metaphor of the journey's end presents sciences directed towards a well-defined and reachable goal, a linear process from A to B. Whereas we might equally think of science as circling round and round an issue, revealing multiple viewpoints of opening up more and more questions rather than finding unambiguous answers. Another third set of metaphors can also be found in the news reporting of the Higgs particle. And these were metaphors that attempted to explain what the Higgs is. Several reports described the field of which the particle is a manifestation as treacly. The particle creates mass by sticking to matter and thereby holds the universe together. Now, Peter Higgs, who is, of course, the physicist who predicted the the existence of this particle, has said he dislikes that metaphor of treacle. He prefers an alternative of a snowfield. Treacle, Higgs complains, suggests viscosity, and that is not actually a factor in the Higgs field. So metaphors, then, are something that physicists consciously examine for the ways they can mislead as well as for how they may enlighten. Now, metaphors such as these are coined with the purpose of popular exposition, of course. But physicists are reliant on metaphor in their technical communications, too. Indeed, even to refer to the Higgs as a particle is, I suggest, to resort to metaphor. One wouldn't guess it from the news reports, but what was detected at the Large Hadron Collider was not the small bounded object that the word particle suggests... Indeed, I'm not sure one can even say that the Higgs is an object in any literal sense. So the issue about whether there's reality there does come up. Rather, what was detected was a statistically significant excess of events indicating the presence of a collection of particles, none of them the Higgs. Um, And these events, and that's perhaps another metaphor, were themselves computer reconstructions deduced from the data of energy and angular momentum gathered uh, at the collider. (laughs) So in other words, the observations were of bumps in energy distributions against a noisy background full of such bumps, with a pattern suggested of the presence of the particles that a Higgs boson is expected to decay into. So all that's really quite a long way from actually having seen a particle. Now, these examples of metaphorical usage relating to the Higgs discovery think, uh, suggest, I think, three different functions for metaphor. The first, like referring to the God particle, serves particular interests in public discourse. Such metaphors have been referred to as promotional metaphors. They help shore up the authority of science, and for issues with policy implications, they serve to frame the issue in a particular way. So in the case of the Higgs, perhaps um, that, that usage helps recruit support for the public funding of the Large Hadron Collider. The second function is to describe the scientific process, and these metaphors unfailingly construe science as a cumulative, progressive quest for truth and position scientists as the daring heroes in that quest. And the third function of metaphor is epistemological. So these are the metaphors that seek to explain the natural phenomena, and these metaphors pervade technical scientific discourse as well as popularisations. 
Now, perhaps the examples I've given seem to imply that metaphor is inaccurate, uh, an improper use of language, or that the metaphors used to popularise physics are just not very good metaphors. But the point I want to make uh, is actually the, the opposite of that. As Richard has suggested, metaphor plays an essential role in making sense of the world. Metaphor is generative. By bringing two distinct domains into contact, we're able to look afresh and discover new features in the domain we are struggling to comprehend. But by the same token, metaphor is also restrictive, eclipsing those aspects of the primary domain that are not found in the secondary domain. So to call a resonance in an energy distribution a particle is useful insofar as it reminds us that we are considering a very small entity. But it is limiting in that it suggests a hard, solid, bounded object like a speck of dust rather than the cloud of probability that quantum theory implies. And there goes another metaphor, cloud. Can't do without them. Likewise, it's useful to say that subatomic particles have spin, And this is a measure of their angular momentum, but it does not mean that subatomic particles literally spin on their axes like planets do. Electrons, for instance, do not literally spin. And every year when discussing metaphors with my my students, I I mention this fact and I'm always met with gasps of shock. What? Electrons don't really spin? And these are clever science graduates, but the majority uh, have always assumed that what we call subatomic spin is the same as the spin of a tennis ball. And physics is filled with metaphors like that. Metaphors that become so commonplace within the subject that we cease to view them as such. Physicists are constantly making that leap from the experienced world of the everyday, uh, the world of spinning tennis balls, into an imagined world of the smallest and largest scales. And I say imagined not because uh, that world is fictive or unreal, but because we can only access it through the resources of our imaginations. Of course, physics, like the other sciences, is constrained by experimental data. Well, perhaps not like economics, but perhaps I like the other natural sciences. Um, So, for instance, the energy data from the Large Hadron Collider constrains what we can say about particle physics. And also it's constrained by mathematics, which allows us to manipulate and extend and generalise such data. But machine readouts and equations only constitute knowledge about the material world if we are able to interpret them. And to do that, we need words, words that have meaning and that can project that meaning onto the things that we are studying. So without the imaginative leaps that metaphor makes possible, the stuff of physics is ineffable, as ineffable as the stuff of religion. And perhaps that's why we so readily resort to religious metaphors and popularizations of physics. The metaphorical work of physics is therefore inevitable. And in many cases, it's, it's perfectly innocent. I mean, apart from the period of confusion it might cause physics students, it really isn't a problem that the spin of a subatomic particle is not literally the same as the spin of an everyday object. Or indeed that a subatomic particle bears only the m- most fleeting resemblance to a particle of dust. It, it doesn't really matter. In such cases, once someone has become a fully signed up member of the physics community, a member that is of a particular speech community, the word particle or spin or force or field for that matter is redefined with a precise meaning grounded in the mathematics. 
Yet even then, a metaphor can obstruct, as with the ongoing difficulty in quantum theory, where our metaphorical language of particles and waves simply cannot capture the simultaneous particle-like and wave-like properties of quantum phenomena. But other metaphors in physics are perhaps less innocent, especially where the claims of physicists constitute a call to social action. So, for instance, in the 1990s, a group of scientists argued that asteroids should be viewed as a threat. They talked of asteroids as killers, as the enemy, and they joined with weapon scientists to argue that we needed to create a shield in space to defend us from the enemy. So the metaphor of war allowed asteroids to be co-opted into a policy to weaponize space. And some of those same weapon scientists went on to dabble in schemes for geoengineering. And their metaphors from everyday domains, such as uh, health and medicine, for instance, or domestic technologies, have served to make speculative designs for the global control of climate seem natural and normal. So it might not matter much that physics abounds with dead metaphors, but recognising that metaphor is central to physics may help us recognise that certain ways of speaking within technical discourse as well as in popular discourse can constrain our imaginative capabilities and, at their worst, can allow ideological positioning to pass off as neutral science. Metaphor allows us to speak the truth by saying something that is wrong, That means it can be creatively liberating, but it also means it can be surreptitiously coercive. Thank you. Okay, so I feel slightly on the run here. Um, uh, There's no truth in economics. Turns out there's none in physics either. Uh, Our third speaker, that most orthopaedic named uh, of surgeons, uh, Roger Niebuhr, may be able to reassure us that when you cut into a piece of flesh, there is something real going on. Roger, we'll we'll see. Hmm. Um, (laughs) I think we're going to need to start the projector. Yes, I think think we're going to need to put down the lights as well, if you can... uh, I think someone's on that. Turn on to that. Brilliant. That's exactly the exact opposite of what's exactly wrong, isn't it? That's That's really very difficult. Yep, that's perfect. Is that better? Yep. How's that? Do that. Okay, good. Well, so I'm going to. Um, and before I start, I'm just going to tell you that I'm going to show you a couple of pictures of surgery, and you may or may not like surgery. I'm going to do it anyway, um, so you might want to put your head underneath the desk or something just for a minute. Um, this, is, this is the world of surgery. This is, the, this is the kind of world that you see if you're a surgeon. I'm, I'm a surgeon, have been a surgeon. And when I was doing surgery, I, 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 would, I would do operations, and I would think about the operation. I'd think about the person I was operating on. Um, and I'd, I'd, in, in, in early times, I would be out there in the periphery, third or fourth assistant. After a few years, I'd gradually come nearer the centre, and I'd end up being the person doing the operation. But I was inside there. I was, I was doing it. Um, and that's one way of looking at the, at the world of the operating theatre. But here's another. Um, This one's somebody else who's not a surgeon looking at surgery from a completely different point of view. This is 
many of you will know, I'm sure, this is Barbara Hepworth, um, in 1948, who's, one of whose triplets was very ill, had a lot of operations, and she spent time in the operating theatre. And so she's seeing something different. She's looking at the, same, at the same event, but from a different point of view, and she's framing it through a different medium. She's framing it through paint. And, she's, and what she is framing is different. We're not seeing the details of the operation. We're not responding to what I would respond to as a surgeon, which is thinking about what's the procedure, what, what are the instruments. You can't see the procedure. You can't see the instruments. And so we've got a different way of looking at, um, at the operating theatre. Here's another one. This is an event we did um, a few months ago at a large science fair for children. And it's it's an operation. It's a brain surgery operation. Where um, we start off, we're we're looking at a group of surgeons uh, doing an operation, making a hole in somebody's head. You can probably gather that this is not a real operation because there's about 250 uh, young people watching it while while it's going on. And what is happening is that we are using a simulation. We're using a physical representation of a sequence of events which is leading up to an operation taking place. So we've got loads of people in the audience, adults, children, watching. And they're watching this operation unfolding in front of their eyes. Uh, and the, the, uh, the business end of this operation is where somebody um, has to make three holes in the skull and then join them together to lift a bit of skull out and relieve a blood clot under the, under the skull. So here we've got somebody who you wouldn't normally perhaps expect <laughs> to find in an operating theatre um, getting stuck in and having a go. Um, and, and this is. I think, she, I think she's through, Roger. I think she's got there, yeah. And this is quite a physical thing. Um, and for as long as I can remember, because when I used to do this, I, I just learnt how you do this. You make three of these holes and then you go between them and you get a bit of skull that comes out and then that's, you, you've got into where you want to go. One of the, one of, somebody in the audience was, a, was a, a, a sculptor and an engineer who said, Why do you make three holes. Why don't you just make one hole and then use that thing to go and make the triangle? And I'd never thought about that. I hadn't thought of asking that. And I don't think any of the brain surgeons had either because they that's just how you do it, is how it had always been done. And so here we are, I think, with a, with a, a sort of intersection of different, different metaphorical frameworks. So I want to suggest to you that surgery um, is a it's not exactly... Well, it isn't a science, although it, it, it depends on science for many of the things it does, but it's not a science like physics. It's, not a, uh, it's different from economics, I think, as well. I, I would say that it was more of a... Um, it's a profession that is also a craft and an art and a performance, and I want to, to tease out some of those connections um, metaphorically and see what happens if we, if we, if we shine our, our lamp in a different direction. Uh, and, and what we might come up with. So a couple of examples. So one, I think, interesting one is, is how, we, how we gather knowledge, how we gain knowledge. In our case, as surgeons, the knowledge we need to operate. Um, where you have to, to have to learn a whole load of anatomical information and then put it into practice. And if you're a taxi driver, you start off, as, as many of you will know, um, you have to go through a long training, about as long as it takes as a, the first part of a medical course, and you start off by learning knowledge, by memorising roots with an A to Z, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional reality, but you are tested. Somebody will say, take me from 3rd Avenue to Randolph Avenue, and you have to enumerate every single side street you'll go past on the way in a viva voce examination. 
um, rather like you do when you're learning anatomy from a textbook. So you just have to learn what's there. But then, then you have to you have to convert it because you then have to recognise not only what things are called but what they look like. Because the examiner will say, instead of take me from Third Avenue to Randolph Avenue, they'll say take me from that large glass building with green doors round the corner from Fenchurch Street Station to the town hall opposite Finsbury Park Station or something like that. And so you have to know what it looks like. And then after you've learned what it looks like, you've got to do something else again. You've got to learn those special techniques as a taxi driver that allow you to do things like doing a U-turn in the middle of a dual carriageway without telling anybody or blasting through people on a pedestrian crossing whether they're there or not um, and all that kind of thing. You have to be able to make sense of a rapidly unfolding dynamic um, environment where there are one-way street changes and all sorts of things are going on on the hoof in the moment pretty much as you do when you convert those anatomical diagrams into what you're doing in the operating theatre, when you don't know exactly what you're going to find, but whatever it is, you've got to deal with it. And so I think there are interesting parallels, as well as differences, between those two ways of, of looking at how you gain detailed knowledge. But another one is what happens when you move outside what you're familiar with. This is a bespoke tailor I've been working with for several years now, Josh Byrne, who's in Savile Row, and here he is um, doing something with, with no apparent effort. He's, he's, he's putting together um, a bit of a suit, and he's using, he's using needle and thread, um, and he's joining things. And um, when I was doing surgery, I did a lot of trauma surgery for many years. I did a lot of things with the needle and thread. I used to join things. I, I was pretty, pretty fluent at it. And I thought, well, how difficult can it be to do what Josh was doing? So I asked him to let me have a go, and here's what happened. But, oh, so I've gone through... You've uh, got the pad, so you have, to take, you have to go back and take that out. <laughs> so I need to pull so you take the needle out and undo the stitches. If you use the needle, because yes. otherwise that's the oh, wrong, wrong stitch wrong to stitch. pick out. Yeah. <laughs> the back end of the needle is easier than that. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it, it's 20 seconds. I've made about so, 11 elementary errors. And so what's going on here? Because it's definitely not the first time I've used a needle and thread, but I think what's happening is that, is that there, that's the way I'm used to, where I'm standing up. It's a bright light. I've got a gown on and gloves. People are passing me things very different from sitting down uh, on a stool with a thimble and, a, and, and nobody passing me anything. Um, and, and so although the, the, although the essence seems to be the same, the, the context is wholly different. And shifting the context made me see things I didn't know were there, things that I required in order to be able to do that effort, apparently effortlessly, that I must have learnt but which had disappeared from view. I run a master's programme at Imperial, Masters in Education, in Surgical Education, and I'm going to show you a couple of examples um, from, from, uh, from that. This is a group of uh, master's students. They're surgeons in training, one or two consultants, mostly you know, people in their sort of mid to late 30s um, and I've taken them to central St Martin's back of King's Cross to uh, take part in a ceramics workshop with some ceramics students and so we started off trying to show the ceramics students how to put in some stitches on some oblongs of latex and the ceramics students found it difficult which we expected and so did they and then they tried to show us how to throw some pots and we found that difficult which we expected and so did they so, so far so good but then we had a, a demonstration from their, their teacher um, 
about how to throw a pot, which, as we expected, was effortless and, and, and fluid. But then he said, OK, well, look, I'll show you what happens when I thin out the, the neck of this vase so much that it, it won't hold up its own weight. And so he thinned it and thinned it, and then went... <clears throat> um, and so then we started having a conversation, not about the techniques of our, of our craft, but about the thin materials on the verge of collapse. What happens when the material that you're working with approaches the point and then reaches the point where it won't work anymore? And for the, for the ceramicists, that's very straight, for, for the surgeons, we all had a vision, I think, in our mind of operating on somebody who's very old and very sick and their intestine won't quite hold stitches and if it does, they pull out, will it work, won't it work, that kind of thing. And so we were able to talk um, from a point, from a perspective of, of deep experience and knowledge about thin materials on the verge of collapse that we couldn't do when we were talking about sutures or throwing things on pots at a more elementary level. So again, a metaphorical shift that allowed us to think different, or forced us to think differently about things we thought we already knew. And the same thing um, happens with, with all sorts of crafts. I think this is a, a stone carver I've been working with. I've been working with wood carvers, with all sorts of other people who do things where, there is an, where, where you can see a connection, although obviously a very big difference between sculpture of one kind, in this case gargoyles and, um, and, and trefoils on, on, on cathedrals, in our case um, moulding a duodenum to the side of a pancreas. I hope there aren't any surgeons here because that doesn't really make sense, but that kind of thing, um, <laughs> where you're, doing, you're, you're shaping things inside the body. And here's another example. This is, again, the, the master students, but this time we're looking at the intersection between hands, again, hands, instruments, materials, with a, a, a distinguished lute maker over here in purple who's showing us what is involved in making a musical instrument, um, with, again, with materials with, with, uh, of, of many kinds, um, creating something that is designed to be performed upon. Something where the creator doesn't usually perform, but hands it over to somebody else. In this case, a, a, a lutenist who, um, who, who plays this kind of music. So who is at home with the repertoire of the lute, but who is also at home with a different kind of repertoire, and who at another moment is able to switch genres and play in a rock band. And so we, we were starting to discuss what it is to move between one way of playing and another way of playing, alongside one way of surgery and another way of surgery, planned surgery versus emergency surgery, a lot of similarities with, with um, scored music and improvised music, and again, always at that intersection between hands and materials and instruments. And I'm just going to finish up very briefly, if I may, with... Um, piece of work we did about a year ago for a programme on, on Radio 3 for half an hour where we were looking, uh, I was looking with a, uh, a musician, a professor of performance um, science at the Royal College of Music, Aaron Williamson, at, at two parallel cases. One was surgeons doing an operation, a complicated operation in teams uh, to take out a blood clot from somebody's carotid artery and the other was string quartets. And, and how they work together. So here are the surgeons. Um, the surgeon in each case working as a team to do a complicated operation under local anaesthetic to make a hole in the artery that goes from the heart to the brain and gets clogged up with gunk and you need to take the gunk out because people can get strokes if you don't but they can also get strokes while you're doing it if you're not careful. So the stakes are high and you have to know what you're doing. Difficult operation, taxing. So we got them to do that in a simulation while recording 
um, with, with microphones what was happening and then played back that recording the following day to the, to the surgeons in the studio and asked them to overlay their sort of inner voice of what they were thinking okay. at the time, this kind of thing. Right. In to out, remember, in to out. So the surgeon is commenting on what she was doing at the time um, as she was replaying that operation. That's not bad, actually. And then we've got a similar thing with the, with the string quartets. We were looking at the cellist in each case of three different levels of experience of string quartets. And again, asking them to replay their own performance and, and, and make their comments. Get that cheek on. Oh, not quite. Quite a lot of distractions from the audience. Coughing quite loud in it is very distracting. It certainly managed to distract me. So we're getting near to the end now. And I'm thinking, has it gone well? I think it's gone quite well. I'm not really close to the end yet, but it's impending. Getting the accents in here is really hard. I think I managed it. Okay, so, so what I've tried to do is to, is to show some examples of much more physical things than we've heard about so, so far, where I think using one way of looking at things, or, or one way of looking at the world and applying it to another apparently unconnected way, to me, is an interesting way of beginning to make visible things that were there all the time, but that within a dominant metaphorical frame, one uh, I certainly had lost sight of. Thank you. Either Roger, you or somebody else could turn the lights back up again. Yeah, I'll do, try and do it. If you'd I, undo I did that wrong thing, last time, so what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> Complete darkness will be your fault. Yay. Ah, oh, that's much better. Hello, everyone. How's that? <laughs> yes. Very good. So, um, one quite quick thing. I mean, uh, just about metaphors. Um, I did like the association of metaphors as being guilty. I think we kind of all uh, uh, used that a little bit in what we were saying. Uh, the opposite of which is innocent. But I just wondered whether each of you or either of you or any of you could give us a sense of what the alternative would be before we discuss metaphors themselves. Right, so we're talking, we've been talking about metaphors and their application in economics and communication of physics and surgery, but I just wonder what else it is we could be doing. Like, is there, you know, what, what is the thing which is not a metaphor? What's the opposite of a metaphor, do we think? I think there's no escape. I think you've got to use metaphorical language. And indeed, some scholars argue that all language is metaphorical, inherently metaphorical. Um, but what would it be? Would it be truth or something? The, I mean, fact? The, the, you know, directness? What's, what's the opposite of a metaphor, The, the 17th century scientists who set up the Royal Society, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to find a plain language that, um, you know, removed all these rhetorical flourishes and just said it how it is mm. um, but you can't you I'm going to break the format quickly go on. what's the opposite of a metaphor folks just shout it out yeah go on the object the object a thing as opposed to talking about a thing yeah that's possible any other thoughts about what the opposite of a metaphor is what's the opposite of metaphor denotation denotation good yeah new, what did somebody say a new idea yep yeah. yeah. just shout them out we'll give it a shot say again definition definition yep yeah. empiricism empiricism that would Logic. be like an object Logic. Logic, yep. Any other things that are the opposite? What's not a metaphor? What's the alternative to talking about things metaphorically in science or otherwise? Transparency. Say again? Transparency. Transparency and? Yeah. 
Diagram, yep. Depiction and that. So, yeah. Mathematics. Mathematics, that's not a metaphor, you might argue, yes. I did two years of maths degree, I kind of agree with that, yeah. Any other things that aren't metaphors? Any, other, any alternatives? Yeah. Facts. Facts, yes. Let's have some facts in the matter, not metaphors. Yeah. Any other things that aren't metaphors that we'd like? Experience. Experience, yeah. There was another one. What was the other thing that happened? Same. Same. Experience. Well, yeah, two simultaneous experiences. Good. Uh, any others? Folks, you got any others that we're going to oppose to metaphor? Truths? Directnesses? Okay. So you were saying there's no alternative. Well, is there an alternative? I mean, there is something else, which yes, is what I call brute reality. All right, what's that and, like? Or oh, you called ineffable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a very good description of it. And I just, I thought it was actually use, useful here to read something by one of my favourite authors, mm-hmm. Iris Murdoch, yep. in a lovely book called Romantic Rationalists, talking about Sartre. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, gets at what there is if you don't use language or models or metaphors or something. Good. What does exist is brute and nameless. It escapes from the scheme of relations in which we imagine it to be rigidly enclosed. It escapes from language and science. It is more than and other than our descriptions of it. So what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. How do you interact with it? Of course it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not sort of trying to be some postmodernist freaks who say that you know, the world is only in your head. And that's not the, of course brute reality is there. It's how do you interact with it if you don't have some handle for getting hold of it? And you say math, someone, I expected maths actually to come up several times here as the opposite of metaphor. I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, math, mathematics is a language itself, a mm-hmm. sort of language, and it makes you look at the world in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. In, in the discipline I look at a lot, economics, it makes you look at things in a very particular way, where things that aren't easily quantified don't so easily get modelled, etc. So I think almost all languages are... Are a, have a strong metaphorical element and have a metaphorical role. So, so there is a brute thing out there, yeah. we assert, which is not metaphorical, but as soon as we start to interact with it, we have to be metaphorical in I doing think, so? I think that's right. Do, do others agree with that? Not well? necessarily interact, okay. uh, um, but as, as soon as we want to conceptualise or understand it, mm-hmm. I think we... As soon as we're involved at all... I mean, Pavlovian responses can happen without language, but they also happen without understanding. Right. So I think this is why I think it was a relationship with science. Science is knowing that something is the case, and I don't think you can know that something's the case without a language, without a model, without a metaphor, without a structure. Yeah. And by the moment you're doing that, you've got a particular lens you're using. That's now, my contention. Roger, the journey that you've been describing, fascinating. Yeah. How long were you a surgeon for before you were doing the stuff you're doing now? Would that be a Oh, I was a surgeon for about 10, 12 years, and I was a GP for about 15 years. Okay. So there was, was there a bit where you were doing stuff that wasn't metaphorical, and now you're the lutenists and the you know, yeah, well, suit makers I mean, and all, I'm sure which is all terribly. Yeah. But I mean, was, was there a bit when you were doing the actual, well, yeah. the actual thing which wasn't metaphorical? Well, it wasn't for me. I didn't see it like that at the time. I think it was, right. in retrospect. But I, I just think I wasn't aware. I think it's a bit like what Richard was saying about the, the economic um, metaphor of celestial mechanics being invisible to mm-hmm. the people, to economists for a very long time, in fact, until very recently. Not because it wasn't there and they weren't thinking like that, but because it was so... Uh, it, it, it became invisible. So and you, I think it's like that in surgery, where you, you think you're just dealing with brute reality, but you're not. You're thinking of it in terms of other things all the time. And the word just is very telling in mm. there, isn't it? You know, that you're just dealing with yeah. reality, but actually, from the outside, with insight, it's clear that you're not. Absolutely. And I think, you're, I think the metaphors that you use to make sense of it change. And I think medicine is riddled with all these metaphors, particularly the ones about war, fighting disease, you know, 
battling with cancer, all that kind of thing. And there is that sense of there being a, a way of interacting with people's bodies that, that is metaphorical. You, you, it's not a neutral thing. You're, you're doing it for a purpose and in a particular way that is, that is deeply metaphorical, but a lot of people don't see it. So can I ask a question about medicine, but uh, I want to take it back to the other domains as well. Would you have been, so we'll take you as, you know, yeah. your past you uh, and those that, were, that are still oh, yes. doing medicine yeah. unenlightened, right, that don't realise they're I, being I metaphorical. Yeah. <laughs> um, but would, would you, they, be doing medicine better if they were less metaphorical about it? In other words, would it be better to be doing medicine directly? Would it be better to be doing economics or indeed physics without these metaphors? Should we strive for a more direct engagement with the brute, nameless stuff which we are about? I think sometimes an awareness of the metaphorical framework one's using can be helpful. At other times, it can get in the way. And it can make you think too much about things that you do better automatically. But there are two... I want to come to the awareness of the metaphor in a minute, but the question of whether it's a good thing to be dealing with things, you know, whether it's helpful to be dealing with things metaphorically, or for example, you've been very involved in medical education, yeah. should you be saying to your potential surgeon, look, stop thinking about it like a whatever, engage more directly with the fact that it is a colon, Does, is, is there that? Yeah, but I don't think, I think, I think we can't, they're inescapable, okay. these metaphors, they're, they're, if we want to get rid of them, we can't. Right. Um, I think it's just a question of framing what kind of metaphor is most helpful, and I think changing that can be very helpful. So you're not advocating purer economics with less use of metaphor to make it better in some sense? No, although I'd pick up one thing that that, uh, Felicity uh, mentioned. I mean, I think uh, metaphors can be used in a rhetorical way that is not helpful, or is very political or ideological. So a, a good example is... The same employment law can be talked about as employment protection mm-hmm. or as a rigidity. Mm-hmm. Now, these are very loaded. These are very loaded metaphors, mm-hmm. if you like. They're both metaphors, mm-hmm. but they're very loaded, in, and, and they have political connotations as well. So, we have to be very alive to the rhetorical use of these metaphors as well as the scientific use of these metaphors. I think that's an important thing. So, just to be clear, you're not saying that it's either a good thing or not a good thing that economics is metaphorical. Uh, it's, it depends on the, the metaphor that's being well, used. Well, to come back to that, I mean, to come back to what would... If you try to think of what would the economy be if it, in this ineffable brute sort of form, format, mm-hmm. I, it's very hard to think what. I mean, it seems to me there are at least three very different aspects of economic interaction. One is the one that standard economics with its equilibrium models gets at brilliantly, which is the allocative aspect of economics, this amazing coordinative property of markets to allow the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker to all interact with each other, trade goods, find prices, and, and, and it works. I mean, and this is an amazing fact about, about human interaction, and, and economics gets that with its additive equilibrium models. Additive new word to me, but yeah, good. And then, but there's, there are very other aspects. There are other things going on in economics. So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a knowledge content element of it, which Hayek talked about with prices being like a telegraph system if you think about what prices are doing, they're reflecting decentralised, dispersed knowledge that you and you and you and everyone has, but only they, in many cases, have that perspective on the event. And these prices reflect all this. And this is an extraordinary feature of markets, this, this capacity to transfer information. So that's another aspect of it. But how do you get at that in the same metaphor as the first one? You can't. So, and then there's the creative aspect of markets. The thing that fascinates me, one of the reasons I got interested in writing about economics, is why do we think of it as static equilibrium celestial mechanics when it's one of the most creative 
areas of human life. We're innovating all the time. We're creating new products. We're thinking in new ways about the products. We're um, inventing new preferences. Advertisers are inventing new ways of having us, etc., etc. It's a very creative process. You need another set of metaphors to try and understand the creative dynamic aspects of economics, I think. So all those things are real, but getting at them is difficult with only one set of models. One, one more go at the reality thing, and, and will you forgive me? I've maybe thrown out of the building actually on this one, but um, the, my favourite economics joke. So the, um, uh, all the, the chief economists of the various world banks come to a conference in Switzerland, and it's in the summer. And uh, on the rest day of the conference, they go for a walk in the mountains, and they get horribly lost. And uh, so the chief economist of the World Bank gathers them all together and he takes the maps and the GPSs and he starts triangulating and taking sightings and so on. And after about 20 minutes of calculation and drawing, the other economists say, so? He says, well, you see that big mountain over there in the distance? And they go, yes. He says, well, according to my calculations, we are standing directly on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, which seems to me to be the case often with economics. And I suppose the thought behind that is to ask whether for economics, but then for the other domains, if you took away the metaphors, whether there would be anything left. But I think there's something left. I mean, if you take the, if you take the surgical example, um, appendicitis exists, even, if even in the absence of surgeons who might... Or even in the absence it. of the name appendicitis. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, and it always has, and I'm sure it always will. Um, and so it's not the appendicitis that is the metaphor. It mm-hmm. is the... It, it, it is the relationship with people who are who are engaging with it in some way or another, either the people who've got it mm-hmm. or the people who are trying to fix it or whatever. That's where the metaphor comes in, I think, because the thing itself is its reality. It's getting inflamed and it mm-hmm. bursts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a that's a distinction. I don't know. And Felicity, I mean, does the you know so to that exact point, we'll come back to it. But I mean, does does the Higgs exist? I mean, you've, you've I think very beautifully described the limitations of the ways we talk about it. And I'm not even asking you if there is a right way to talk about it, you know, a direct brute way. But does it exist, even despite our inability to describe it? Um, the material world exists. Mm-hmm. Um, does the Higgs exist? Well, one could imagine maybe an alternative paradigm in which you could explain as much as we can explain about the material world without having a concept of the Higgs. Mm -hmm. In the same way that we used to explain, um, say, the movements of the planets with Newtonian uh, metaphors Mm -hmm. about forces, um, and today we'd explain that uh, using general relativity and metaphors about bent, curved sheets and things. Um, so, So to say... The Higgs exists. We can say that what we have observed of material reality is consistent mm-hmm. with our models, which include a Higgs particle. Yeah, that sounds like a, a sort of no. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, do you want to have a shot at defending the notion? I mean, is there at least a gradient? I mean, I was kind of, as it were, playfully asserting there might be, but is there even a gradient about domains of science, if we're well, economics as a science, which exist more without metaphor and those which don't? I mean, is, is there a sense I mean, you could ask me about economics as a science. Uh, whole, do you want to go there? Whole, whole question, yeah, but, anyway. but um, I think there's, there's something, there is something different about economics or so any social science from, 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 uh, from physics. Mm-hmm. And that's that what we're studying is human behaviour. Yeah. And human behaviour is almost entirely, or at least deliberative human behaviour, is mediated through language itself anyway. Mm-hmm. So the languages that the economic agents are using, in many cases of which are loaded with metaphors in particular, is, ha- what, is what partially structures their behaviour, their belief systems and their behaviour. 
So you have to do two things, I think, as a social scientist. You both have to use your own methods to try and understand what's going on, but you also have to, if you like, um, engage with the metaphorical structuring and the, link, the, the, the conceptual structuring that economic agents are using that structures their behaviour. So it's a sort of two-stage two uh, analytical <coughs> process, and that, that makes it much, much more complicated. Beatrice Webb, one of the founders of the LSE, argued that actually to be a good social scientist, you have to read lots of novels, mm-hmm. because... Um, because you needed analytical imagination in order to, to understand what it was that drove the motivation of people in social, in social, uh, in social um, um, predicaments. So I'm going to come to questions in, in a moment. Just one other question which follows precisely from what you've just described. So we're in a school of economics, right, uh, in London, and so we're a bit about education. And I guess also with the literary metaphor, it is the case not universally, but most people who do literary stuff right, are also critics. I mean, whether, as it were, amateur or professional critics. But, but the criticism of literature is part of the enterprise of literature. Most writers are critics. And also, I think it's the case, and I don't necessarily want to get into an argument about this, that um, artists are reflexive about their own practice mm-hmm. as a fundamental part of artistic educational training. Right? So if you go to art school, some of you can probably have been there one of the things you do is to think about your own practice as an artist, almost from the beginning. In fact, almost even before you have a practice as an artist, you're being encouraged to think about your own practice. And this reflexivity, right, this sense of defining what it is you do, is fundamental to the notion of art and becoming an artist. Now, by contrast, it seems to me, that isn't the case in science, and perhaps not in surgery or medicine either. So people get to be really good scientists without, if you speak to a sociologist, having any idea what it is they're actually doing. They have all these notions of truth and discovery and progress and stuff, which are ridiculous if you look at it as a human enterprise. And I just wonder what you think about you know, the progress of science without reflexivity. Well, I think People are good doctors without knowing they're using metaphors. Yeah, is it helpful not I to think know? that's nonsense. Good. Yeah. Um, because I don't think you certainly from my own point of view, I don't think you can be a good doctor without being reflexive. I don't think you could probably be a doctor at all, really. But, um, you, know, but you did you, say there was a bit where you didn't know you were using, you, you were using metaphors, right? Uh, yes, but I didn't say that I wasn't reflexive or okay. that I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. Okay. Um, but I think that the, the more experienced you get the more aware you become of that reflexive process and how important it is to go to carry on. Because I think to begin with, rather like the taxi drivers learning the A to Z, your head is full of just cramming in facts to begin Mm -hmm. with. And as you start to make sense of those and apply them to to relationships with other people, which is what medicine's all about, then you're having to bring into play not only the people you're dealing with but yourself in that process. And you're having to make sense of other people's metaphors. And you probably recognise other people's metaphorical frameworks before you recognise your own. I think, well, that was the case for me. In science, I don't know. I mean, I, I, Yeah, well, even in Imperial, right? So we have science communication, which is very strong at Imperial, uh, partners for this event, as I've noted before. Do you think that physicists would be better physicists if they had courses from you that helped them understand the metaphors that they were employing <laughs> in their physics? It's a straight question, right? Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, that's a tricky question um, because at least in in the in the training within any area of expertise, I think one one needs to learn how to do the stuff. So you need to learn how to do the maths, and you need to to learn the the sort of consensus view. And if you're a, a starting off PhD student and and you're getting terribly reflexive and and questioning everything, you're not going to make a lot of progress. 
Um, and so there are perhaps times when being too reflexive can actually in, inhibit. Um, but on the other hand, as, as Roger says, um, one needs to be a thoughtful practitioner. So maybe not when the body's being reeled in and, and you're, you're needing to rapidly intervene. But if, if you never reflect on that afterwards, uh, if you're unthinking, that's a problem. And, and I think there, there is a bit of an issue in science where there, there's not a reflexive culture like there is in the arts. Um, but when you say issue, right, that suggests... And I'm not going to... Hop, in other words, no one's going to hold you to this, but I'm just kind of interested. And I think there are debates in Imperial about exactly this question, with Imperial being, as it were, a science institution, but having some humanities in it. You know, what the... Yeah, it's an issue, right? So what's the deployment of that understanding like as part... I'll come, you know, in, in terms of educating physicists? Maybe is it useful not to let them know that that's what they're doing until they've reached group leader level? I mean, you know, when, when are they ready? <laughs> I, I think this is a dangerous misconception that, that scientists don't have, don't use imagination and creativity and metaphor and all those other things, just like anybody else. Well, yeah. It's really not the province of artists mm. alone. No. I think it, it applies equally, if not more, to people. And Richard, yeah. you were saying that some of the most important scientific discoveries have come from metaphorical shifts. And sure. The claim is they don't use. It's not that they don't use them; it's that they don't know, use, I, know they use I them. I think the point you're yeah. making is well, the lack yeah. of sort of critical. Right. Uh, so it's about questioning mm. the assumptions with which you're working and. And I don't think scientists are educated to do that mm. very consciously, even though science, you know, is held up as the sceptical enterprise. In fact, if you take a group of humanities students and a group of science students, you'll find the much more sceptical, questioning, critical group are, are the humanities students. Yes, I mean, I, I think philosophy of science is incre incredibly important to making good scientists, but then I would say that because I'm a philosopher. And... I have been, it, I mean, economic methodology and philosophy of economics are two rude words in most economic departments. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're considered the real bores who, who, um, who, who question everything, etc. Evidence so, against the ceiling. So, yeah. so, so, so there, is a, there is a point, I think, in what, in what you're saying, and it's part of the whole sort of Kuhnian idea of paradigms, I think. We, we tend to operate within a paradigm, and we don't realise until the crisis that it, we were so locked into one way of thinking. Um, should you question it? Yes, you should. Your point, I think, about when is quite important. I was involved in a, um, an economics curriculum uh, reform um, mm -hmm. debate, and one of the things we wanted to do very early on was to put philosophy of science uh, and history of economics into economics courses, because, look, you know, if you weren't reflective about the way economics was structured, you made some terrible errors, mm -hmm. and it's self-evident. Mm -hmm. Um, and we got a lot of pushback, I have to say, from economics departments saying, look, if you don't teach them the economics 101 first, mm -hmm. then you, what, you, you're, you're just teaching them to question before they know what they're questioning. So there is a, there is a, there is a, a pedagogic issue here about when you, 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 uh, you, you invite people to question. But that should the practitioners question constantly? Yes, they should. should you know, ser do all serious uh, scientific practitioners are they reflective? Yes, they are. I mean, I'm very struck in, in economics. The most, those who are most critical of standard economics are almost all Nobel Prize winning economists who have, therefore, you might say, yeah, got the once, they, once they've got the got prize. The freedom right, yeah, to them, um, yeah. exactly. But, they are the, but it may be also that the reflective ones are the ones who do the really good work. Any Nobel Prize winners in the room are welcome to comment on that uh, if they'd like to. We'll go, we'll go to the floor. Um, I think we're gonna, we have a mic, don't we? Um, so uh, why don't you wait until it comes to you. And uh, for your legs, the person who's got the hand up first is at the very back. And then we'll go further forward. 
Um, I'm quite interested in the the way metaphors being framed as if there are two distinct realms. One is the the sort of the real, and one is the the less real, which is the metaphorical. But um, I think when you actually look at metaphor, it works in a different way. And there's an example from here at the LSE, um, the Philips hydraulic computer, which I don't think is still on show, but. Um, it was one of the students' ways of trying to model using mechanics the, what he was being taught in economics. And he made this hydraulic machine that you could pull these gates out and all these, the water could flow into different troughs. And it, it worked for that theory. Now it is empty and it's a kind of historical uh, uh, piece to show a former idea of economics. And but what also strikes me, even though it was a mechanical thing that worked, is it was a highly metaphorical machine. And so it's, it's this question of where, which is the metaphor and which is the thing that works or the observable thing. And I, yeah, it's just a question. Thank you. Yeah, that. good. I'll, I'll take the gentleman in uh, one, two, three, five rows down uh, with his hand up uh, next, and then we'll come to that question. I'm, I'm informed by a whisper that it's in the Science Museum. Seventh floor computer area. Seventh floor? Second. Second floor computer area on display as we speak. Um, in fact, as we speak, literally, because there's a late on at the Science Museum, so hopefully there are people interacting this very much. Uh, I'm interested in the practical utility of, uh, of metaphor, and particularly in medicine. As Roger's pointed out, medicine is absolutely stuffed full of, uh, of metaphors, uh, and some of them have gone over the years wildly wrong and become deeply damaging. Um, for example, the, the, the warfare one, which is a frequent, the most commonly used um, notion in, in medicine, I think. If you see what's going on down at the level of the individual cell and the molecule, the actions of the immune systems, the cells in, involved in it, then the, the parallels with human conflict are almost unavoidable. The problem there is that this metaphor has then been translated up to the level not of the cell, but of the whole patient. So people no longer have cancer. They fight with their cancer. They no longer die of cancer. They die following an unsuccessful battle with cancer. And the consequence of patients, I think, very often is that they're left feeling, uh, when they're in this terminal stage, that they are somehow uh, suffering a moral failure on their part. They didn't, if they'd only fought harder themselves, they could have won this battle. So I think that's an example where uh, the, the metaphor is very useful in, uh, in understanding some of the nature of the process, but absolutely disastrous when it's translated up to the level of the, the whole patient. And, and I think it, 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 it can easily become very um, damaging. For instance, the metaphor for, quite a, for a long, long time was very much this combative one of uh, there's cancer, it's the enemy, you must cut it out, it's no good just cutting out the enemy, you must cut out the land that the enemy's standing on and we got these enormously dreadful um, operations for breast cancer, which went on right until the 70s or 80s with these hugely um, damaging operations until the metaphor changed and it then began to be seen as a mutilation of the body and an unnecessary mutilation but until that happened this mutilation just wasn't seen as mutilation it was seen as a, um, a legitimate sacrifice on the battlefield against this enemy of cancer and I think this, this sort of military metaphor really goes through, well certainly in surgery, in cancer surgery it is, it is very deeply <coughs> embedded and and very difficult to turn around and so when there are new ways of looking at disease and you're talking about things at the cellular level and those metaphors don't stack up or they, they work differently then there is a danger that people get trapped rather as you were saying with the metaphorical frameworks of economics mm. in a way that, that, they, that they just got used to and came to accept without really challenging the metaphorical framework but just just challenging the inhabitants of the framework rather than the framework itself and that's a bit about the hydraulic machine as well yeah. that it works in certain 
But not in so others. Yeah. Richard, were you nodding as well there? Or? No, I mean, I agree yeah. with that. Because I think, but then I guess the question might be, how do we, you know, get better metaphor? You know, should we have, I don't mean metaphor police exactly, but should we be thinking about substituting well, one metaphor for another? to change their clothes every so often. Oh, and, I think that, and, and I think that really helps, because um, otherwise we get so used to them that we no longer see they're there. And this is right. where constantly experimenting with different ones and imagine to be playing with different metaphors is so important. It's only if you get locked into your battle metaphor that it right. really matters. I mean, there is a battle element, yeah. sadly, to cancer. It's just not the only way of looking at it. Right, but that's, so the domain of playing with metaphors and experimenting with them would be a good one. Lady with her hand up there, and then we'll come to gentlemen afterwards. Yeah. Hi, um, so I'm a student here studying um, Masters in Philosophy of Social Sciences, so this might be a somewhat metaphorical, um, kind of metaphysical question, sorry. So I don't think you'll have a conclusive answer to this. But, um, like a challenge, go on. Yeah, um, but so if you are right, and almost everything um, we encounter or interact with in the world is metaphorical, and we have no way of escaping this kind of um, language in reality, and because we're not all here brains in value, or anything like that, then how is one able to distinguish between what's a metaphor and what's reality or the material world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, anyone want to try a definitive one on that? We'll go to the gentleman here after that. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing we've called the brute reality, the, the material world, is the thing out there. And um, the, the thing about metaphor is, is that's our efforts to, to grasp that world. It's not the world itself. Science is not the world itself. Science is a system of knowledge, our attempt to understand that world. And it's there, in our attempt to understand the world, that metaphor um, inevitably comes in. It it, it doesn't mean the the world is not there. So um, that question about brains in vats, you know, that's about material existence. But if we're experiencing um, but, it, then we are experiencing it. Well, not ex- I wouldn't say experiencing. If if we're cognating it, you're thinking, yeah. we're drawing on metaphor. If we're just experiencing, you know, a dog experiences the same brute reality as we do, but it's probably not using metaphor to understand that brute reality. Richard, I mean, Wittgenstein had a very interesting way of thinking about this, which I think was ultimately wrong that you had different languages in which you thought about the world, but there was no Archimedean point, he thought, in which you could stand outside all language and kind of and, and judge it against brute reality, if you want. There was, that was impossible, and of course, in one sense, he's right. But what I think he could be mistaken for, for thinking is that, therefore, there's no way you can judge whether one metaphor is better than another. Right. And I think that doesn't follow. Right. Just because they're incommensurable and there's no one total metaphor that gets at all of reality doesn't mean that one metaphor isn't better than another for a particular for looking at a particular aspect of reality mm-hmm. so we can make mutual and mutually intelligible the differences in what these different metaphorical frames t- reveal about reality and we can reason about how good and what otherwise they are without ever actually being able to literally look at brute reality in some mm-hmm. uh, sort of neutral way and, and judge the language you know uh, 98%, 97% of course we can't do that but we can reason about these different languages but if we, if we are able to change the tiles on our metaphors 
uh, you know, see different ones, then mm. we're likely to get a, uh, a different set of perspectives, mm. aren't we? I think one of the, going back to the earlier point, one of the problems is when you when you are so accustomed to your metaphor that you don't know that it's there, yeah. your, your framework. And, and I think that's what we can do, even if we can't ever actually see the brute reality itself. We can see different. Uh, we can have different relationships with it. And so there's a certain value of, of being able to switch metaphors and also yeah, assessing that some are better than others. I'll come to you very briefly, yeah. first thing, then we'll go back. Yeah, yeah and, and it, it's um, not just about being having become accustomed to metaphors, but they get institutionalised and locked in. Right. So, say, in physics, you know, we're pouring vast amounts of money into particle colliders. That's locked us into a set of metaphors that expects there yeah, to well, be particles. Yeah, the other side shows the metaphors are working because they yeah. haven't been right. <laughs> the vast amounts of money. Sarah, and then we'll go to you. Yes. Uh, I think, from to, to my way of thinking, one of the most pernicious, un- uh, unfortunate uses of metaphor is the the, uh, the way that, say, the popular, uh, uh, the Daily Mail. Let's be specific. Will we'll use things like um, the misuse of, of the, the genome, so that pe- people, uh, many people, think there's a uh, a religion gene or a uh, a uh, a gay gene, or there's a um, an addiction gene, and I think what that has led to is that many people think that in the in the near future, uh, g- geneticists will be able to engineer, you know, the, uh, go to a couple. A couple will be able to engineer the, their the children they want, which you know, it's not just it's dangerous thinking to begin with. Um, but also, what I, one one se- one one second point is it is it the case that certain things? I'm, I'm thinking of celestial mechanics. There's uh, and what's uh, what's going on uh, currently in theoretical physics in regards to the concept of time. Uh, writings like with Lee Smolin and, and Sean Carroll, that certain things, which we talk about multiverse reality, certain things are beyond the comprehension of of, of the human mind. So that meta, there's nothing, there's no there's only alternative. There's no reality behind it. Yeah, interesting point. Um, lady to the left, and then we'll go back up. I, I do think the Daily Mail is only partly response. No fan I am, but uh, university press releases have something to um, Yes, I'd like to pick up on the idea that we're locked into metaphors and that um, we also have the free will to move between different metaphors, some of which might be better than others. But how free that will is in terms of what metaphors we move in between. Um, if you think about Foucault's archaeology of knowledge, we know that um, these um, these are epistemic epistemic metaphors and um, we are not free to choose the metaphors that we move um, in between. Um, So we haven't talked maybe enough about um, um, how determined by ideology these metaphors are, um, by funding, um, by politics. So could you yeah. Could you address that? Good. Well, do you want to take those two folks? And then um, the, uh, there's a gentleman, after we, we've done this uh, with the uh, uh, college shirt and tie there with the blue one. Um, so, are we more, I mean, is there a sense in which we're more enlightened if we're able to escape from ideology and choose our own metaphors? I mean, you know, the extent to which we're bound by ideology or. I mean, it's very difficult to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. And I, um, and, I think, and I think there's also is a strong political element. To, 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 to them. So, I mean, I, I have some sympathy with the kind of Foucault analysis, but I think he overdid it, if you like. I don't think it's as deterministic as... as, as what did he say in, in a word? Well, it, he has it as a kind of... 
I mean, the perspectives of guns, if you like, to fight with rather than, you know, it's all about a battle between different perspectives. It's Mm -hmm. a kind of a political battle as much as... as And I think there's an element of that, Mm -hmm. but as with all these metaphors, it's a metaphor again, if you like, um, it's not entirely true. I want to pick up one... Should we be angrier then about, you know, metaphors that the Daily Mail, as it were, would would advance? I mean, you know, that is is cultural political warfare, isn't it, When, when... Yeah, I mean, I think there is an element of using metaphors in a in the wrong sense of rhetoric, mm-hmm. um, if you like, as a, as a tool to, 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 uh, to, um, to, to pervert, if you like, the way we look at things in some way. I mean, all language is a strong tool, and it can be used nefariously. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is true. I want to pick up one Very point about Voyage, th- this idea of how you think outside language. Uh, Wordsworth had a lovely description of Newton. He said he voyaged through strange seas of thought alone. And I think that's, that may be what it would be like to think without language or without metaphors. I mean, Einstein, these amazing scientists, probably do, in a sense, get ahead of the con- concepts that have already been created to think about. And they have to create a, a conceptual structure to then... That, so that maybe some people can, es- can escape, in a real sense, from these linguistic things. Mm. But I think more of us can play with different ones. It's a bit like being multilingual, I think. You can be multilingual. It's difficult to be multilingual. It's very difficult to learn another language well enough, but you can do it. And I think scientists should try and do that. I, I'm going to take three more quick points from the floor before we conclude. Felicity, I just wanted to check, though. I mean, you, you avoided being angry, I thought, in, in your remarks. Well, do, do you get a bit angry about the use of metaphors around physics at all? I mean, you know, is this sort of battle sense or, you know, when you read stuff in the mail, does it make you angry? Should we be more angry about the metaphors which we find ourselves... Uh, you know, led into? I, I think the stakes around physics tend to be less high than, than say, in medicine or, or, surgery, yeah. or, mm-hmm. or um, genetics. So mm-hmm. I'm not so often moved to anger. Um, you noted that physicists are very opposed to the God-particle metaphor despite having coined it, right? Um, it's actually a publisher who coined it, okay. and I think they didn't like... Even the author of that and book they get didn't upset? like it. So, yeah, I think they can get, get upset about that, but they're often... Um, well, as, it, as in the case of, of talking about genes, um, the, the, I think the scientists are perhaps unwittingly complicit in, in some of those popularizations because the scientists have been very happy to adopt, say, a metaphor of DNA as the book of life. And if you've got a book of life, then it's made up of a load of chapters, and, you know, there's a chapter on religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they're... Um, the problem is that they can find a metaphor that works well in a particular context, but then that context gets expanded. And because scientists aren't very reflexive in this particular sense, mm-hmm. um, that they, they won't necessarily be thinking through what are the implications of using this metaphor. Very good. Um, we'll go, sir. There's a lady there, and then gentleman at the end, we'll, and, and we'll wrap. Yes, sir. Um, I, I studied some uh, cognitive neuroscience at university, and I was just wanting to say that I thought um, we've been talking about economics and um, medicine and science generally as metaphors that we use to help us to understand the world. Um, I think it would be interesting to note that at the very earliest um, parts of brain uh, structure, they're set up as a method 
to help us understand the world. They're not set up blind in a kind of, here's the, um, a neutral way of seeing it, that even the most basic ways we see are set up as a way, um, in a way that's evolved to help us understand it. Um, so even the length and thickness of lines and so on, um, you perceive them differently if you're perceiving something as one object rather than another. So if you see something as an arrowhead rather than something else, you see it as longer or shorter or thinner than you actually is. So even at the earliest level, there's a biological um, metaphor, as it were, um, in the setup of the perceptual system. I hate the term hardwired, but it does suggest, I think correctly perhaps, that you're, you're asserting that the, 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 the metaphorical view of the world even is hardwired into the most fundamental kinds of perception. Nice, nice point. Man, uh, you're going to be the penultimate. Yeah, hi. It's a little bit of a follow-up of this question. That's luckily like coincidence. So you all agree that uh, we need metaphors to interact, understand the world, and the, the brute reality exists. But do you think it is only because we need language? Or do you think that our brain really needs it because that's how it operates, because it makes comparisons with something known, and it needs to categorize? So from a more neurobiological perspective, why do we need them? Very good. So we'll, we'll leave ourselves with that question uh, to wrap up. So you, you'll, you'll be the last um, to speak. It's the gentleman with the red ties, matching the handkerchief. Yeah, it's a very interesting discussion, and it's led me to ponder whether an apple is a metaphor. Um, but I wanted to ask, I wanted to just sort of mundanely suggest that the point of metaphor is to make the unfamiliar familiar and we say that something is like something unfamiliar, ambiguous or new is like something else which is familiar and we've got hold of and you know, think of uh, DNA and the patent says this was recombinant DNA and that carried with it certain implications for what people thought that adding a gene into a gene sequence would do and would not do and it turns out they were wrong sometimes and then people came along and said, oh, it's not recombinant DNA, it's a Faustian pact, or it's frankenfoods, and this sort of thing. So I think one of the exciting things about metaphor is that in a language community you have so many different interest groups promoting different connotations of the new and creating exciting controversies, which those of us who are interested in science and society... Uh, keeps us employed. I was going to say, so Felicity keeps you in business. Um, thoughts on that then, about the, the utility of employment of uh, philosophers of science, if nothing else. Uh, but then also this, this rather interesting point, perhaps, about biology and the inevitability of, of metaphor yeah. and language. Uh, last remarks. Uh, Richard. Um, and I wanted to actually pick up one very early question which never got answered about models. Yep. I mean, mo models and metaphors, it's very interesting, the relationship between models and metaphors. And I think models use metaphors, but they also can be used as metaphors. So if you start to use models to look at the world, you're using it. But that, because I thought that was a very interesting question. That gave me a little bit more time to think about the answer. Yes, yeah, really that look up. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a sense in which, I mean, Kant didn't perhaps phrase it the same way as the, as the, as the neurophysiology trained student over there um, but he thought that there were necessary ways of seeing that just human beings just had to, as human beings they had to see them that way and I think there, is a, there are clearly elements of the way the structures of our brains and the way our brains work do condition the certain ways in which we interact with the world and that is you know, at, a, at a very basic level uh, um, 
a barrier between us and brute reality. It's also a way of dealing with brute reality. It's the way we can cope with it. So there's a necessary biological element, and then there's a cultural contingent element to how we look at the world. And that's where language comes in and all the, the concepts that we create. And, you know, is the apple a metaphor? I mean, that's a great question. The, the house is a very interesting one. If you ask children to draw a house, they all draw it with a chimney, and almost no houses have chimneys anymore. So we seem to have a concept of a house um, which we, with which we spot houses, if you like, but it's not something that we've, in, we've got out of the, the brute reality of houses. We've learnt this concept, and actually we've learnt a concept that's slightly wrong because it has chimneys on it, mm. um, and we apply it to look for things in the world. So it's a very fascinating area. Christy, I'm keeping you in business. <laughs> yeah, well, just taking that, that point about metaphor is, is about um, seeing the unfamiliar through the familiar. It's also the opposite. It's about seeing the familiar through the unfamiliar, and, and perhaps that's how poets would see well, metaphor. Well, artists defamiliarisation. Yes, yeah. it's about defamiliarisation, and perhaps that's the use of metaphor that we're not good at within science. We're not good enough at making things look strange. And when we have the, the big sort of paradigm shifts, for instance, from Newtonian physics to, to relativistic physics, what we're doing is taking something we thought we knew, we thought it was familiar, and we're making it look strange again. Thank you. I think one of the things that that implies is discomfort and having to burn a lot of fuel to do it, because it's much easier to just stay with the things that are familiar. Reframing metaphors and finding new ones occupies a lot of energy. Thank you very much. Which we have consumed much of this evening. Uh, folks, this has been part of the Literary Festival at SE. There are many more events this week. If you haven't got a programme, we would strongly encourage you to pick up one on the way out. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for coming, and please join with me in thanking Richard, Roger and Felicity for their... Uh,